Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Continuing our study through 1 Corinthians, this morning we'll be looking at chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. First Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 12. Please give your attention to God's holy, powerful, inerrant word. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves... If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, Strive to excel in building up the church. I was just surfing around the internet this past week and I came across an article. Didn't have time to read it, so I don't know what the actual article said, but I was caught by the title. The title of the article was Things Christians Say All the Time That Aren't Biblical. And so I thought to myself, what might some of those things be, since I didn't read the article? And one of the things that you might hear, especially lately, that isn't really biblical, is this phrase, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That sentence has been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which If he were alive today, I don't think he'd be very happy about that because he didn't actually say them, and he wouldn't actually agree with the central sentiment of that sentence. Actually, I've heard that phrase more recently in the last few years as the church has been caught up in all this controversy over social justice ministries. Is that really what the church is called to do and how that relates to preaching the gospel? And So I've heard that phrase used quite often, that sentence. It's intended to challenge Christians that... Being faithful in your calling is more than just sharing words, that it actually involves doing deeds of mercy and acts of kindness, that, that acts of social justice, those things are legitimate expressions of a commitment to the gospel. But the problem is, if you take the sentence in and of what itself and what it says, it implies something that is unbiblical. 
It's a wrong understanding of what the gospel is. The gospel isn't something we do. The gospel is not an action. The gospel is a verbal message. And the gospel must be preached. It must be shared. It must be spoken. That's our calling. Paul summarizes the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll get there in a couple of weeks, in a few weeks. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's Paul's succinct summary of the gospel message. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. And all the truths that are wrapped up in the gospel are summarized in those basic historical truths. It's a verbal message. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, preach the gospel. Well, there the focus is on getting the gospel to those outside the church, but those of us who are inside the church understand, hopefully everyone here anyway, understands the importance of preaching the gospel to each other. That that is our commitment to one another, that we'd be sharing the gospel with one another daily, encouraging one another in the gospel daily. And it is a verbal message. Preach the gospel to each other at all times, and definitely use the words. You see, this is the kind of problem that Paul was facing in the first century as he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, the very troubled church in the city of Corinth. They were confused about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We began looking at this several weeks ago. We started in chapter 12. These Christians were confused about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and they were abusing them because of their ignorance and also because of their selfishness and self-centeredness. They had lost sight of what Paul says over and over here in these three chapters. They've lost sight of the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit. Why did the Holy Spirit give gifts to the church? Why does he give all these varieties of different gifts to believers? What's the purpose? He restates the purpose here again in verse 3. It's for the upbuilding and encouragement and consolation of God's people. For building up the church, as he says in verse 12. That's why the gifts are given. That's why he took time out. We looked the last two weeks at that great chapter 13. That's why he took time out in his argument in addressing this this problem and this divisive problem in church. He takes time out to talk about love. Because the gifts of the Spirit, they're, they're tools that the Spirit gives to the church to do the work that the Spirit has called the church to do. But if the tools are not used in love for God and love for one another, then it's worthless, meaningless, and of no advantage to the believer. And so here in chapter 14, Paul then gets back to his main argument. He gets zeroes in on what the, the real issue was. We find out in chapter 14, really, what was the gift of the Spirit's issue that they were struggling with. And what we see here in chapter 14 is that the Corinthian Christians had an inflated view of one of the gifts, one of the miraculous gifts. We've already seen in chapter 12 that they were infatuated with 
the unique gifts that the Holy Spirit gave to the church in the first century during the era of the apostles, the, the ones that involved doing miracles. Things like healing and, and the gift of faith to do great miracles and, and the gift of prophecy and the gift of speaking in tongues. They were fascinated with those gifts and they started to develop a very selfish, self-centered view of the use of those gifts. They started to measure each other. They thought those who had the miraculous gifts, like speaking in tongues, they must be the spiritually elite. And you still see that in churches today. Churches that believe that speaking in tongues should still be operating today, they still use that as kind of a a measurement of your spiritual, uh, being filled with the spirit of whether you're really a spiritual person or not. And that's what's going on in Corinth. And that's what Paul's seeking to address. And so in verse 1, we get his conclusion right up front. Before he's even started to deal with that issue in particular, he gives what the conclusion is going to be. He says, pursue love. Reminds him of what he just said in chapter 13. Love is the most important thing. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are good. All the spiritual gifts are good. They're gifts of God. Desire them. Especially that you may prophesy. And that's the contrast that he wants to set up in this chapter, is the contrast between the value and the direct fulfillment of the purpose of the gifts that we see in prophecy as opposed to speaking in tongues. He says in chapters, remember back in chapter 12 and verse 11, he said, the Holy Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. We talked about that, that not everybody has all the spiritual gifts. Matter of fact, we only have one, we may only have two or three, but the Spirit gives the, the gifts of the Spirit to whoever he pleases. It's a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to speak in tongues or if you want to have the gift of prophecy or the gift, whatever spiritual gift you're talking about, it's not up to you ultimately. It's up to whether the Holy Spirit gives you it to you or not. But Paul is saying it's good to seek the gifts. And he's saying, well, as long as you're going to seek a gift of the Holy Spirit, why don't you seek the one that is of the most value for what the gifts were intended And that's where he's going. Because the problem in Corinth was that speaking in tongues had become like the Cadillac of all spiritual gifts. Everybody wanted that one. And people who had it were seen as on a higher plane or up on a pedestal. Well, I have to pause for a minute here. And we've alluded to this back in chapter 12. But I need to pause for a minute and talk about what was the gift of speaking in tongues in the first century. A lot of debate about this through the history of the church. And certainly up to this day. Especially in the last hundred years or so. It is important to take note of the fact that the gift of the Spirit that is called speaking in tongues is only referred to, is only mentioned in two books of the New Testament. The book of Acts and here in 1 Corinthians, in this section that we're dealing with in 1 Corinthians. Acts chapter 2, I want to take you back there for a moment if you want to turn back to Acts chapter 2. This is where we first see this extraordinary gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's the day of Pentecost. The Pentecost was one of the great feasts of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. This is after the resurrection of Christ. The apostles were told to wait for the Spirit to come upon them. They're waiting, they're meeting in Jerusalem, cowering, so to speak, as they meet in Jerusalem, waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. On the day of Pentecost, in these great feasts, Jewish people would come from all over the Roman Empire to come to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage. And so the, the city was filled with tens of thousands of foreigners, people who were Jewish by heritage, but they came from another country. And on that day, as the disciples left their upper room and went out 
to begin to proclaim the gospel, a miracle happens. And I want to read it to you beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? It was a miracle. They spoke probably in Aramaic, primarily, exclusively probably, and yet all these different people from all these different nations all around the Roman Empire heard the gospel, this accounting of the great deeds of God. They heard it in their own language, it says. The technical term for this is xenoglossia. That's what a linguist would call it. It's the ability to speak into a language that you've never learned, a real human language that you have never learned yourself, that without the Holy Spirit giving you this miraculous ability, you would not be able to speak in this language. That's what, it was xenoglossia, that's what was going on in Acts chapter 2. Everybody seems to agree about that. Modern day tongue speaking, on the other hand, is, and this is what you'll find in charismatic Pentecostal churches and other places, is called glossolalia, which is no discernible human language structure to it. It sounds like words, but there's, it's, not, it's no human language that anybody knows. And that's what is called tongue speaking in today's church. It's used in worship services, it's used in small fellowships, it's used even in private worship, and there it's usually called like a prayer language. It's something you've never learned that the Spirit supposedly gives to you and you speak it, but it's not a language that is known anywhere else. Sometimes these churches will insist that it be interpreted and translated by another miracle of the Spirit. Sometimes it's not translated, which is actually closer to what was going on in Corinth. Why is it that Christians today talk about speaking in tongues as a different kind of gift than what we see in Acts chapter 2? Well, those that defend the practice as something that should be normal in the life of the church base it really on this chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. This chapter is where they draw all of what they know or where they, they, they pull out scripture verses to support this kind of a, an inhuman or unhuman language that is speaking in tongues today. And actually, one place they'll point to is actually if you go back to chapter 13 and verse 1, and they'll say there, see where Paul talks about tongues of angels. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and they say, ah, see, there's language that humans wouldn't know, but it's a language that, that maybe that's what tongue speaking, that's, maybe that's what Paul means, and that's what, we, what we're doing. Well, remember, when we looked at those first three verses, we said that Paul is using hyperbole there. And it's really important to understand what Paul's saying in that entire section, verses 1 through 3. He's using hyperbole. He says, he's, talking, he's wanting to say how important love is. That even if you had the best gifts of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit had ever given to any individual believer, if you do not use those gifts in love, 
then it's worthless. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's of no benefit or value to you. That's what he's saying. And so he uses hyperbole. He says, if I were to speak in all the languages of mankind, even in the tongues of angels, he's, he's being hyperbolic here. Is that the right word? No, that's not right. Anyway, he's using hyperbole to try to get his point across. He's using an extreme. Even if I were able to speak what angels speak, and we said at the time, we don't know if there's a separate language for angels or not. That's not Paul's point. He's not trying to make that point. He goes on to say, if I were to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith, so as to even remove mountains, if I could even move mountains with my faith, if I had the greatest gift of faith the Spirit had ever given to the church, if I give up away everything I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, if I give everything, even my life, he's using hyperbole to say, even if I use the greatest gift ever given to the greatest extent, if I don't have love, it means nothing. So don't go to 1 Corinthians 13.1 to say there must be a language of angels that we're supposed to be able to use as a gift of the Spirit. Also in chapter 14, and we'll see more of this next week when we dig into some more of the details later in the chapter, but Paul talks about, in, in this section, he talks about one that speaks in a tongue, speaks not to men but to God, and that he builds himself up but he doesn't build up the church. And so this idea of a gift of the Holy Spirit that somehow is a, is a direct connection with God and we don't understand what we're saying. Matter of fact, later on in the chapter he'll say, he talks about it, uh, that we pray in the spirit but not in the mind. And so he's like, well, this, Paul's legitimizing what we're talking about here, this kind of a prayer language, this kind of a, a private language where we don't even understand what we're saying, but God understands. Well, based on the situation here, what we're seeing is we've got clear teaching in Acts chapter 2 about what the gift of tongues was. It was a human language that was unlearned, and by, by a miracle, the, the disciples were able to speak in that language and be understood. Here in chapter 14, you've got Paul dealing with a church in Corinth that is using this spiritual gift in the wrong way. It's abusing it. It's using it in a selfish and self-centered way. And Paul is making indirect allusions to what's going on there and trying to correct bad practices. That's not the kind of passage you go to to develop a theology of speaking in tongues because he's making indirect statements and it's hard to know exactly what he means and, and even what tone he's using. When he says that you build up yourself, does he mean that in a positive way or a negative way? Well, commentators argue over that. Does he mean you're building yourself up in a, in a self-exalting way? I think that makes sense in what we know, the way that the church in Corinth was using spiritual gifts. But some commentators, no, no, he means that in a positive way. He means that, that speaking this unknown language uh, is, is somehow building you up, even though it doesn't involve your mind at all. Again, I think Paul contradicts that idea elsewhere, that your mind is involved in building you up. But anyway, um, I think it is wrong to build a theology of speaking in tongues on chapter 14 because he's trying to address problematic use of the gifts. And that's what we see in this section. One interesting allusion, and we'll get into this more later, but look at verse 21. Paul is talking about the speaking in tongues, the way they were doing it in Corinth, and he compares it, he, he, he connects it to what Isaiah talks about hundreds of years earlier in a prophecy back in Isaiah 28. And he quotes the prophecy in verse 21. And he says there, this is, this is from uh, the book of Isaiah chapter 28. In the law, in the Old Testament, it is written, 
By people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. He's saying that Isaiah, there's an illusion, there's a connection between what Isaiah is talking about and what's going on in Corinth. What's interesting is that Isaiah was talking about a known human language. That language, the language of foreigners that he's talking about, was the language of the Assyrians who would invade Israel. That God was going to speak to his people through the Assyrian language of their enemies when they came in judgment. And so again, Paul has in his mind real languages, human languages, when he's talking here. And there's nothing that Paul says here in chapter 14, and test me on this as we work our way through it these next couple weeks. There's nothing that Paul says here about the gift of tongues that couldn't be applied to the gift of tongues as we see it in Acts chapter 2, which was the miraculous ability to speak in a known human language that you had never learned. Everything he says about tongues here in chapter 14 fits if you assume that what he describes in Acts chapter 2 is the same thing that's being abused and misused and used in a selfish way in the church in Corinth. And certainly what we don't see in either place, either in Acts or in 1 Corinthians, is any indication that, that the speaking in tongues comes out of some kind of heightened emotional experience or some kind of ecstatic utterance or anything like that. That this is something that, he, matter of fact, he stresses that the, spirits, the, the, the spirit of the prophets are in control of the prophets, you know, that, that these spiritual gifts aren't used in any uncontrolled way like they were being, appear to be being used in Corinth. bottom line is, is that the Christians in the church in Corinth were using the gift of speaking in tongues in a prideful way, in a self-centered way, in a private way, in the context of the gathered people of God to worship. And that's what Paul is offended by. That's what he's trying to eradicate from the church in Corinth. It's interesting, he doesn't discourage the private use of this miraculous gift of speaking in an unknown language. And he won't do that as we go through the chapter. And it does appear that in the first century, when this miraculous gift was in operation, some Christians were able to use it even in private settings. But when it's in worship, Paul says, if it's ever to be used, it must be translated. Whatever is being revealed from God through that miraculous gift of speaking in tongues must be translated. And this is what this whole section is about. That's what he's trying to get across. Speech without understanding is useless. That's the first main point he makes. Speech without understanding is useless. Look at verse 2. He says, if tongues are untranslated, then only God knows what's being said. Even the speaker doesn't know what's being said. No one sitting around him knows what's being said. Only God knows what's being said, but... When people spoke in tongues, supposedly they're being given revelation from God to be spoken to men. What in the world would be the purpose of somebody speaking something that neither the speaker nor the hearers could understand? If God could under, is the only one who can understand it, he's the one trying to communicate it. What purpose would it be? That's the point that Paul's making in verse 2. To other believers, to everybody, including the person speaking, it's just noise. Meaningless noise. Many of you have met my wonderful dog Dash. Dash um, has a lot of ways of communicating even and you know it's interesting when you think of language even dogs and people have a language we communicate with. When we lived in Philadelphia we couldn't see the front door of our house from when we were sitting in the living room and so we when he was a puppy we came up with the idea of putting 
a uh, bell on a, on a long string so that the bell would hang all the way down next to the floor. And so when, bell, when, when Dash wanted to go outside, since we couldn't see him standing at the door, we taught him to go over and ring the bell. And when we heard the bell, we knew he wanted to go out. And he's a smart dog. We, we communicated that way, and he, it worked really well for a while. But unfortunately, he began to generalize so that ringing the bell meant not, I want to go outside only. It meant, I want supper. I want a drink. I want to play. I want some attention. It could mean anything. It just meant he wanted something. And it was really, the longer it went on, to this day, if you come over to visit, he'll come up and maybe he'll paw your foot, you know, or he'll paw the, the, the leg on the couch or the coffee table. Uh, you know, to, pawing means I want something, but we have no idea what he wants. And you know how it is with your kids before they can talk. When they want, they're crying, you know, a baby's crying. You have no idea what they want, and you're trying everything in the book. That's, communica- that's frustrating communication. That's what Paul's saying. If you lose the meaning, if there's no meaning there, you have a soul and I have a soul. We want to be friends. We want to, if we're in Christ, we want to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Our souls need to connect. And the only way for our souls to connect is for us to communicate messages to one another, primarily through words. We can do it a lot of ways, but primarily through words. So Paul's saying, if this isn't happening, then this is no good to the church. Speaking in tongues that doesn't communicate any message is useless. In verse 3, he points them instead. If He says, okay, you're aspiring after a gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to give gifts wherever he wills. But if you want to aspire after a, a gift of the Spirit, and that's a good thing to do, to test, you know, test your abilities, test how God uses you, test how God blesses your ministry. If you're going to aspire for a gift, don't aspire for speaking in tongues. Aspire for prophecy. The ability to understand a message from God and to communicate it clearly. Of course, this is first century prophecy he's talking about. And this is during the time of the apostles. The scriptures weren't yet complete. And since the scriptures weren't complete, the Holy Spirit was giving messages through the apostles, who spoke really on the level of the Old Testament prophets, but then also under the apostles, there were prophets during that age that received revelations from God, but it was received and communicated in the language of the people. And say, that's the gift that you want, because that's what builds up the church. In Romans 12, verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's how God normally works, is that he, through his word, he changes the way you think and changes your heart at the same time so that your life changes. He works through the word implanted in the mind and the changing of the heart to to accomplish a transformed life. Clear messages from God, understandable messages for God is what he wants the church to focus on. Verse 3 puts it this way, for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and consolation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, for you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. That's what's given to us, is the word of God. That is the means by which the church is established. That's the means by which the church grows. And it's how we as individual Christians grow. In verse 5, he says, boy, you know, it would be great if everybody had the gift of speaking in tongues in that day. He said, you know, it would be great if we all had that miraculous gift, but it would be better if we all had the gift of prophecy. 
If God was going to work that way and give one gift to everybody, he wouldn't give everybody the gift of speaking in tongues. He'd give everybody the gift of prophecy, where his word would be clearly communicated. That's his main point. He uses, he's thinking there, I think, of the words of Moses. Remember when Moses, all the way back, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, Moses said, would it, that it all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. In verse 7, Paul goes back to musical instruments. Paul must have loved music. He talks about instruments again here, and he points out two that were very common in the first century, the flute and the harp. And he's basically saying, if you play a flute or you play a harp, but you don't use the language of a tune, the language of the rules of music, if you don't use the language of music when you play a harp or a flute, it's meaningless. It's noise. And he says that's what... The gift of tongues is without translation, without the word of God being made clear. My daughter and her husband bought my grandson a piano for a little toy piano, actually a pretty good sized toy piano for Christmas. They're obviously rookies. Clearly a rookie mistake. Don't ever buy your child a toy like that. That's a grandparent toy. Grandparents buy toys like that to annoy the parents. And so when we go to visit now, he loves to pound on that piano. He's almost two. He just pounds on that piano. I tell you, we love his songs, but we grandparents are the only ones who love his songs (laughs) because everybody else, it's meaningless noise. He doesn't know the language of music yet, and that's the analogy that Paul's making here. He goes on in verse 8 to talk about another instrument, a bugle, but in this context, he's not talking about music for pleasure. He's talking about music for battle. That's how they communicated with the troops back in those days. And the bugler would blow his trumpet, his horn, and he would use it. There would be a message that, depending on what tune he used, what series of notes he used, it would communicate different messages. Either a call to wake up, or a call to assemble, or a call to march, or a call to attack, or a call to retreat. Each sequence of notes had a different message. And he says, what if on the day of battle... He were to, the, the bugler was told to call the troops to battle and he started playing random, you know, maybe he was drunk that day, I don't know, but he starts playing random notes. It would be a disaster. He's saying, this is what's happening in your church, people. The word of God is not being proclaimed. And if you don't repent, it's going to be disaster for the church. And this is why he goes to this last point in this section, which is that untranslated tongues would not only be useless and frustrating, but it's alienating. Speech without understanding is alienating. Again, Paul goes on in the next verse to talk about human languages. Again, that's his context. He's thinking human languages. And he's thinking about the different languages of the world. He says, you know, without meaningful communication, if you have a language and I have a language and there's no correspondence between the two, he says, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. You hear what he's saying? Language barriers are just that. They're barriers between people. Language barriers prohibit communication and relationship. Language barriers keep us foreigners and strangers to one another. He says, that's what you're doing with this miraculous gift of speaking in tongues. You're making yourself foreigners to one another. Language barriers are barriers to relationship. They divide us. 
When I was living in Philadelphia a number of years ago, there was a big controversy in the city. As you probably know, if you've ever been to Philadelphia, if you know anything about the city, there's two cheesesteak places. There's more, but really there's two. Geno's and Pat's. And Geno's cheesesteaks put a sign in their window one day. And the sign said, This is America. When ordering, please speak English. Wow, the whole city was in an uproar for weeks after that. Finally, the city council had to come in and force them to take the sign out of the window. And what, their, what that controversy illustrated is really what we're still debating in the immigrant debates we're having politically today, is how do you take a bunch of foreigners and put them together in one place and expect them to live peaceably together? And whether I, you agree with Gino putting the sign up or not, and probably it was not the best way to go about what he was trying to do, it's a real issue. If you don't speak the same language, how do you know one another? How do you serve one another if you don't speak the same language? And it's a real issue for immigrants. That's why we have an ESL class at Oakwood, English as a Second Language. That's why we, all the, the many thousands of of people from foreign countries that come to state college, that we can take them in and try to help them speak our language. We see it as a ministry because we can't know you, we can't care about you, and we can't communicate the gospel to you unless we can speak the same language. That's really what it's about for Paul. He's saying, you need to build up the church. You need to encourage the church. You need to console and comfort the church. That's why you come together for worship, to build one another up, and you can't do it without speaking clearly the word of God. You see, alienation, foreign language is an alienation. That goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, doesn't it? God is the one who initiated all the different languages. In the book of Genesis, all of rebellious mankind spoke the same language And they united together in their common language to build a tower to man's glory in opposition to God's rule. And you remember how God responded. According to Genesis 11, it says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. It was an act of common grace as well as judgment where God restrained the wickedness of man by confusing our languages. And you see, that's what the day of Pentecost was about. With the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church of Christ, as the church was being sent out into the world to preach the gospel to all nations, that's that's why that unusual, extraordinary miracle happened on the day of Pentecost, where God's people spoke the gospel in their own language, and miraculously everybody heard it in their own language. What a testimony to the call of the church to take the gospel to the world. And that, that, that's what the book of Acts is about. The book of Acts is about a reversal of the Tower of Babel. That's what the book of Acts is about. That God would be uniting his people no matter what nation, tribe, language, or tongue they come from, uniting them all under King Jesus in the kingdom of God. That's why it says in verse 22, we'll get to this next week, Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. You see, that first century miraculous gift of speaking in tongues was never intended to sustain and and grow and develop the church. It was a sign to the world. 
that they now would be welcomed into the kingdom of God. No longer would the gospel be a Hebrew gospel or an Aramaic gospel. The gospel would be a multilingual gospel as the gospel went to the nations. You see, the Corinthian Christians didn't come to worship for the right reason. Here's where we get to the root of the problem. These Christians in Corinth were going to church to have a self-centered, self-referential, emotional, ecstatic, warm, fuzzy experience to build themselves up and to show themselves off as being better spiritually than others. And quite honestly, that doesn't sound like the kind of worship that we see in the book of Acts. It sounds more like the kind of worship we see in churches these days, where people come to have individualized emotional experiences to make them feel better about themselves in the world. And they, it's an individualized experience while they sit individually in the pew and they walk out no more connected to God and to each other than when they walked in because it was all about this self-centered experience. I think that's why a lot of modern churches look more like movie theaters or concert halls than they do like churches. Because isn't that why we go to a movie or concert? To go have an emotional, uplifting, personalized, individualized experience that doesn't really connect with the people around us. And we walk out no more connected to each other than when we walked in. You see, Paul's saying, you're missing the whole point. Just like they're missing the whole point about love, you're missing the whole point about worship. Worship is coming to hear God speak to his people. Worship is about God speaking to his people through his word and his people responding in praise and prayer. That's why we structure our liturgy the way we do. God speaks, we respond. God speaks, we respond. God speaks, we respond. It's a dialogue. That's what worship is. If you take the understandable word of God out of it, it's not worship. And that's what was happening in Corinth. In John chapter 1, Jesus describes himself as the word that became flesh. You want to know Jesus? You know him by knowing his word. That's the only way. We know Jesus and we show Jesus by communicating his word. I'm going to close by reading from Isaiah again. Prophet Isaiah chapter 55 Listen to this invitation. This is an invitation we use at the beginning of worship sometimes. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. You notice the connection between listening to God's word and feeding and growing and maturing spiritually. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And later on in that chapter, he says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, the word of God is the strength of the church. The proclamation of the word of God is the center of worship. May we be 
hungry and thirsty for the word as we come to worship every time. And may we find deep fellowship with one another as we share the word together. Let's pray. In Jesus, pray, Father, we pray that you would comfort, encourage, build us up by your word. Thank you for this portion of your word. And even though there are portions of chapter 14 that are so difficult to understand and about which we disagree with our brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray, Lord, that we would be guided by your spirit. And if, Lord, if anything I have said here today is not an accurate reflection of your word, then I pray, Lord, that you would not cause it to be retained in the minds and hearts of your people. But whatever is true, I pray you would use to encourage and build up the church And may Christ be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.